Good morning, everybody. My name is Nick. If anybody's a visitor here, so glad that you're here. I am so blessed to be a part of our church, and I mean that. I'm not just trying to sound like it, but uh, man, to see all these kids, a whole worship team almost completely comprised of our young people, and they killed it. Like, it wasn't like, it wasn't a big drop. Like, we weren't just like, oh, this is terrible, but okay, we love children. Like, no, they did awesome. And so... What a blessing to be a part of that, and but, um, what Pastor Ben is doing with these kids is amazing, raising them up, and, and I'm just blessed to be here. So, we are going to continue on in our journey through the Gospels. Today, we are finally through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to jump to Luke chapter 7, if you have a Bible or device, that's where we're going to be this morning, but I want to start out by saying this, I have some specific goals for my life. When I was in seminary, I had a professor that, that said that we should write down what our goals are, that we should actually have stated goals rather than just kind of going through life willy-nilly, but we should have uh, things that we want to do that we've written out that we can kind of measure. And so overall, my goal is to be the best Jesus follower, husband, father, and pastor that I can be in that order. Uh, that's what I want to do with my life. That's how I want to measure whether or not I am doing what I feel like God has called me to do. And each one of those goals kind of has a subset of goals, things that I want to strive for in my life. In the goal to be the best pastor that I can be, I have a few things which I think a lot about. One of them is actually from the book, book of Luke from the beginning where it actually is talking about John the Baptist, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. But John the Baptist has this part in Luke chapter 1, and it says that his goal is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So I have a little post-it note on the bottom of my screen in my home office that says, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's part of my goal as a pastor. But another stated goal that I have in my life that would probably fall into all of these categories. And this might be a little bit of a different one, but one of the goals that I have for my life is I don't want to be offendable. I don't want to feel offense. That's not to say I'm not offended by horrendous things that happen in the world, you know, terrible sins that are going on. But me personally, I, I want to get to a point where I'm not consumed with myself. And so if somebody says something to me, I don't get offended by it. Or I don't get offended if I'm talking to somebody that doesn't know the Lord and they, they talk a certain way or they say certain things. I don't want to be offended by them because if I'm offended by them, then I probably can't really minister to them. At least not well. And so I have this goal. I, I see no virtue in the idea of everyone being offended by everything. Right? We live in this world now where everybody seems to be offended by everything. And, and there's no virtue to that. And so I want to, and I, trust me, I have not gotten there. This is, a, this is an aspirational goal. Okay? But I hope at some point in my life, as I'm growing closer to Jesus, that I get to a point where I'm so not consumed by myself that I'm not offended by other people or or what they're doing, or the way that they speak, or any of those things. I think you'll see how this ties in with what we're going to talk about this morning. 
After the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to jump to Luke chapter 7. If you've seen the thing going around the internet last couple months about how men think about the Roman Empire multiple times a week, um, I teach the Bible, so for me it's every single day because that's what I do. And so women, that's why I think, I don't know why your husband thinks about the Roman Empire Every single day. If you haven't heard this thing, it's a thing on the internet that apparently all men just regularly think about the Roman Empire. And women are like, why? (laughs) So this is my excuse for why. Let's read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 together. After he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, right? This is the Sermon on the Mount. He entered Capernaum or Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is is the one who built for us a synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. Jesus goes back to Capernaum after the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of his headquarters for his public ministry. I have a picture, if you can throw that up, of Capernaum, it's a, it's a beautiful place. Obviously, this is modern, but you can see it's right there on the sea. It's, uh, it's got palm trees, which make me happy. I don't know why. I was originally from California. Don't hate me, but palm trees make me happy. And uh, it's a beautiful place. It's a nice town. It's right on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. As soon as he arrives there in Capernaum, Jesus is approached by some people who were sent by a Roman centurion. Now, this is interesting because Roman centurions are mentioned four times in the New Testament. And they're interesting characters because the Israelites despise Rome. Rome is the oppressive state that is holding them down. Rome are the people that are keeping them from what they want to do, which is to have freedom and to have their land and all of these things. And so this Roman centurion's very existence among them was offensive. The fact that he was even there offended most of Israel. And yet we have this man, who's a centurion, the Roman military's backbone, somebody who ruled over a hundred other Roman soldiers, who's paid more, who has more power, and should be hated, and yet this man is spoken of favorably. 
And in fact, every time we see a Roman centurion in the New Testament, they are spoken about favorably, which is odd. They represent everything that is offensive to Israel. But this man has a group of Jewish friends that go around saying, look, he deserves this. Now that means they have kind of a messed up idea of who deserves what. Because their basis is like, he built us a church, yay. He deserves it, he loves us, yay. But every time we see these centurions, they're spoken of positively. We have the centurion who declared that Jesus was actually the son of God after his crucifixion. Do you remember that story? The centurion says, truly, this was the son of God. Another time, Cornelius is a centurion in the book of Acts, and he is the first Gentile to be converted to Christianity. Another centurion, Julius, in Acts, befriends Paul and protects him. And this centurion in Luke chapter 7, who has a sick servant, doesn't even go to Jesus himself, but rather sends his Jewish elder friends, and they go and they say, he deserves it, he's a good man, you should bless him. And you would think that he would be hated, that he would be offensive. And yet somehow, they're his friends. Jesus goes with the men to visit the home. But then he sends his friends. He still, again, he still doesn't even go to Jesus himself. He sends friends and he says, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. Remember, everybody else said, he's worthy. You should do this for him. He's a great guy, but he knows himself. And he says, I'm not worthy for you to even be in my household. Even though his Jewish friends thought he was worthy, he knows himself. And somehow this man who has the power of the Roman Empire behind him knows that he is not even worthy of having Jesus in his household. That is a level of humility that Jesus marvels at. He doesn't get caught up in what other people think about him. He doesn't start believing in his own greatness when people start to heap praise upon him. He knows himself and he knows that he is not worthy in and of himself to be blessed by Jesus. We need to understand this in our lives. If people start to blow your horn and tell you how great you are, how amazing you are, how worthy of everything you are, we need to understand you know you. No matter how great you might think I am, I know who I am deep down. And I know I'm not worthy of the grace and mercy and blessing of God. Because the Lord's blessing on our lives has nothing to do with our worthiness. It has to do with his word to us. His promise, his sacrifice for us. Now on the flip side, I want to say this. You might be the exact opposite. You're like, trust me, I'm not worried about how great I am. I am a big pile of poop. There are people that feel that way. And I want you to understand, that's not the truth either. You are a child of God made in his image and you are worthy to be loved by him because he is good. Because he loves you. Because he created you in his image to be his son or his daughter. Even if you're one of these people who thinks so lowly of yourself, please understand 
that God looks at you, like I said last week, and he's got a picture of you in his wallet, or you're on his screensaver, or whatever the modern version of that is, right? God loves us because he is love. And this centurion also understands authority. He believed and had faith in Jesus. And he believed that Jesus held the very authority of God, so he didn't even need to come to him to heal the servant. His authority stretches over all of creation. He had the understanding of the power of Jesus that most people in Israel didn't even grasp. This centurion said, Just say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't need to be in my household. You don't need to come under my roof. All you need to do is just say it and it will happen. He understood the authority of Jesus. And for this, Jesus marvels at this man. And he turns to the crowds of mostly Jewish people. And he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such That's an incredible thing for Jesus to say to a crowd of Jewish people. The centurion is a Gentile. He's an occupier. He represents the offense of the people. In many ways, he is the representative of the entire plight of Israel, a nation that finds its value in being the chosen people of God, and yet his faith is greater than even those in Israel. That is wild. There's only two times in the whole Bible, in the whole New Testament, when Jesus marvels at something where that word is used. It's this time when he marvels at the faith of this centurion, and then there's another time that's quite the opposite, when Jesus goes to his own hometown of Nazareth, and the people have such a lack of faith that he marvels that he can't, it says can't, not won't, that he can't even do miraculous works among them because he marvels at how much of a lack of faith. I pray that if Jesus ever marvels at us, it's because we have incredible faith and understanding of his authority and understanding of his power and not because he marvels at how little faith that we have. Let's read the next story. Another amazing, miraculous work of the Lord. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, so this is after that story, soon afterward, he went to the town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. 
Only Luke tells us the name of this city, that it's Nain. It's about 25 miles from Capernaum. And he travels there with his disciples and a crowd. And when they get near to the city gate, there's this interesting moment where there's two crowds that converge. One crowd is mourning the loss of an only son. And another crowd is celebrating the miraculous works of an only son. And they converge, and in this moment, there's this this larger crowd. And some are rejoicing, and some are in deep sorrow. They're both following, and Jesus looks at this woman, and he feels compassion in him. Do you know what word that is? My favorite one. Splagnitiomai. He feels compassion in his bowels. He feels his feelings in, in the deepest parts of him. Compassion for this woman. And he says to her, do not weep. And then he walks over and he touches the coffin, the, the beers, an open casket kind of basket that they're carrying it. And he says, young men, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sits up and begins to speak. And Jesus gives him back to his mother. And the crowd's reaction is fascinating, isn't it? They see this, and it says they're stricken by fear. They watch Jesus bring somebody back from the dead, and they're stricken by fear. But not fear where they start to run away, but fear where they start to give praise to God and say, God has visited us this day. If you actually think about it, this is the reaction that makes all the sense in the world. I mean, some people will just be freaked out and run away, be like, I can't handle this. But these people, they see what Jesus does. He brings a young man back to life. And they say, this is a, this is a mighty prophet. And God has visited us. Notice that when they say, God has visited us, they're saying, this is the power of God at work. And after Jesus does this, reports of his miraculous work begin to spread all over Judea and the surrounding areas. You can imagine the rumor mill buzzing from something like a dead man being brought back to life and given back to his widow mother. In that society, if a woman was a widow and had no children to take care of herself, to take care of her, she was destitute. There was no way for her. So not only is he resurrecting this young man, but in a way, he's resurrecting the life of this woman. He's saving an entire family by doing this. And her friends and her family and their crowds. And then from Nain out, the rumor starts growing. And you can imagine some people are like, no, that sounds crazy. There's no way that that happened. And these people are like, I saw it. I saw the power of God on display. These rumors get all the way back to Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And his disciples come and tell him what's going on. And at this time, John the Baptist is in prison. He's not just in jail. He's in a dungeon-style prison. And in his time there, it would seem that even the great John the Baptist started to doubt what was going on. John had heard the words of Jesus. John heard Jesus' first sermon, which was about Isaiah 61, 
which specifically talked about the opening of prison doors and setting captives free. And now here John the Baptist is sitting behind prison doors, not at liberty, and he begins to wonder to himself, what is happening? This is not what I thought my life would look like. And I've heard people speak ill of John for this, but he's just a man. He's a servant of God. He had an amazing role in the life of Jesus, but he is a man, and like all of us, he struggles with doubts sometimes. And I don't judge him for struggling in this way because I'm quite sure that I would as well. And so we read this, John, this message about John in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, if you want to follow along. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling to his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 21, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were the blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John asks this kind of surprising question because John was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. He was the voice in the wilderness crying out, make way for the king. And yet now John, a couple years later, is at this place where he's in prison and he's asking, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? John the Baptist baptized Jesus, watched the heavens rip open and the voice of God speak over him. And still John is like, are you the one? Did I misunderstand? Did I not understand what you were saying Jesus? So why is he questioning now? He's a man. He's been imprisoned, locked up, going through a season of doubt. And even though he had already seen God do so many things, so many amazing things, he still, he still deals with times that he needs to be reminded. Don't we all? This gives me tremendous hope. I don't know about you, but I read this story and I say, if John the Baptist, who saw the heavens ripped open, can have seasons of doubt later in life, then maybe it's okay that I go through those times too. And maybe God will give me a gentle reminder like Jesus gives to John the Baptist. Maybe he'll speak to me again and say, look, look at what you have seen. Do you, do you not see the work of God that is happening? Jesus' response to the question is amazing. That same hour, he heals people of diseases, plagues, and even evil spirits. He restores sight to the blind, and he doesn't tear into John's disciples. He doesn't say, go tell John that he, like, he doesn't do that. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
and the poor have the good news preached to them. Warren Wearsby says, Jesus did not give the men a lecture on theology or prophecy. Instead, he invited them to watch as he healed many people of many different afflictions. Certainly, these were his credentials as the promised Messiah. Jesus here answers John the Baptist, and he answers again. Jesus knows John the Baptist really well, and he knows that John the Baptist loves the book of Isaiah. Everything with John kind of goes back to the book of Isaiah for some reason. And his answer to him comes directly from Isaiah 35. All those things he said, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. All of those things come directly from Isaiah talking about the Messiah that will come. And so he answers that. And then Jesus finishes his answer to them with this fascinating sentence. This is where I'm tying everything back together. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does that mean? Is John the Baptist offended by Jesus? The Greek word here that's used, that's translated as offended, is the same word where we get the English word scandalize. It's a scandal. And it actually refers to getting trapped, like a bait stick trap. You have that picture for me? Like, you guys have seen these silly traps, right? Maybe tie a string to one side of that, you wait for whatever you're trying to get, you get it and you trap them. And so Jesus is saying, blessed are you who are not trapped by being offended at what I'm doing. Listen, John the Baptist is at risk of being offended by the work that Jesus is doing in this world. We don't see the full work of God in action, so we might feel offended that God is not doing what we want him to do. Like John the Baptist being offended that he's not being set free from prison and brought to liberty because he doesn't see the whole work of God. I told a couple people this morning, there are times when I have to preach a message that I don't want to preach because I want to go, ah, la, 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 la. Because there's times when I feel offended that God is not doing things the way that I want him to do things. I was struggling. I'll tell you the honest truth. Last night, I was struggling with this. Knowing I have to preach this message and feeling like, God, why is this thing not working out this way that I think would be so much better? And then knowing that I have to come preach to you not to be offended by the way that God works in our lives. Many people get offended at Jesus' church because they think that they're not changing the world in the way that they think that they should. They're not solving the economic, political, and social problems of the world. And yet history shows us that the church often leads in all of those humanitarian services. But the primary function of the church is to bring those who are lost sinners to the Savior and to make disciples for Jesus. Everything else is a byproduct of that work. Proclaiming the gospel must always be the first priority. 
on more of an individual level, are you offended by Jesus? I know immediately we want to say no, because that feels very hard to say. Did Jesus not answer a prayer the way that you wanted him to answer it? And you felt offended by that. You felt like that's a scandal. I watched a video this last week from a very famous preacher who got into the middle of some controversy. And I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but he was kind of explaining his side of the issue. And I actually agreed with almost everything that he said, except for one thing. He kept saying in his video that the people who were at the root of the, of the scandal, that, that they had prayed and God didn't answer their prayer. He said that multiple times. They prayed for this and God didn't answer their prayer. And that's not the truth. God always answers our prayer. But sometimes the answer is no. And that's scandalous to us and it's offensive to us. But we don't see the work of God in its fullness. Sometimes the answer is my least favorite answer. Wait. I hate that answer. And God says, maybe, maybe later, but not yet. And I feel offended. No, God, this, this is what needs to happen right now, as if I understand the scope of my life better than he does. Sometimes the answer is, and I think this is the hardest one, sometimes the answer is the same answer that he gave to Paul when Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to take away the thorn in his flesh, we don't know what it was. There's all kinds of ideas, but Paul talks about this, that there's a thorn in his flesh that's causing him problems. And he pleads with the Lord three times, and the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's a tough answer, but it's an answer. God always answers our prayers. But sometimes we're offended by how he answers them, and that's hard. It's incredibly hard for us, but if we really believe that God is righteous and holy and loving, if we really believe that he knows better than we do, how all things will work out for the good of those who love Jesus, if we believe that, then we should not be offended by him. We should not be scandalized by the work that he is doing, even in Jesus' own time of walking on the earth and bringing miraculous healing to people who were sick or even dead. He still had people that witnessed these amazing things questioning what he was doing and how he was doing it. Can you imagine that? I'm sure there's a part of Jesus that's like, really, John? After all that you've seen, you're the one asking me if I'm the one? I hope and I pray that we can spend more time in our lives bearing witness to and celebrating the work that he is doing all over the world than getting stuck in our own offense 
that he hasn't answered a prayer the way that we would like him to answer it. And believe me, like I said, I know this is easier said than done. I'm reading my own mail this morning. May we find joy and blessing in the salvation from our sins, the joy of the Lord in our hearts, and the purpose that he gives us on this side of eternity. And may we not be offended by Jesus so that we can be blessed by the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that all these things would be so. Lord, that we would not be offended by you, but that we would be able to look past our own desires and realize that we can trust you, Lord. And I know that some of these things are so huge in the lives of the people in this room. I know I'm not just talking about little things, but massive, life-changing things. God, can we still trust you to know us and to know what is right, what is righteous, what is good, and what is holy? Lord, may we not be offended by you. May we not be offended by this world so that we might be salt and light to this world. And may we seek you every day. In Jesus' name, amen.